April 23rd, 1985. It's a day that some of you here this morning might remember. I know I vaguely remember it. I was six years old at the time. I was finishing up my first year of school as a kindergartner. Now, you might not immediately know why you remember that day, but there's an event that took place that day that might help to jog your memory. On April 23rd, 1985, there was an announcement made that for the first time in the 99-year history of the Coca-Cola company, there was a change in the formula that was going to take place. Now, we, we, we didn't drink a whole lot of pop in our family when I was growing up, but I, I knew enough about it that I knew that I really liked Coke. And I, I remember the horrific, horrendous day when Coca-Cola announced that they were changing their 99-year-old formula. Because my dad went out and bought a few cans of this newly formulated Coke. And he let me have some of it, and it was absolutely nasty. I, I, I guess they never heard of Yogi Berra's saying, If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? But, but what was introduced that day was something that we were all supposed to fall in love with. It was called New Coke. Now, we've got a picture of this that we're going to put up on the screen here this morning. But, but even as you look at this, you might have this uncomfortable feeling that comes over you. What Coca-Cola thought was going to re re uh, revitalize their company in the war of soda between them and Pepsi-Cola uh, turned out to be just the opposite of that. A after that day, Coca-Cola created a firestorm of American response. I, I, I don't even remember all of this, but people all over the nation began to revolt and it was in the news headlines every single day on every single channel. And there were protests in the streets. There were thousands of people every day who were calling the Coca-Cola company. And this infamous decision lasted for 79 days. At the end of 79 days, Peter Jennings on ABC News did a news break that right in the middle of a show, he broke in and he says, we've got an update to give you. And here is the quote that he had. He said this, the old taste of Coca-Cola is coming back. And in that moment, every one of us said, amen, because we all wanted the real thing. Well, the sad reality is that although people will not stand for less than the real thing when it comes to our pop, our soda, we are more than content to settle for less than the real thing when it comes to our worship. Unfortunately, the church in America is filled with people who are just going through the motions of religion, but, but their hearts are very far from the real thing, authentic, genuine worship. Several weeks ago, we began a study through the New Testament book that was written by the half-brother of Jesus, a man by the name of James. And this weekend, we're bringing this first chapter of the letter to a close. And James, in these last two verses here of this chapter, is addressing the idea of what the real thing looks like. If you have a Bible with you this morning... I want to invite you to grab it, grab one in the pew rack in front of you, open that Bible app, but join me, if you will, in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're going to put these words up on the screen as well, 
But we're going to begin reading in verse 26, and here is what James says. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one's self unstained from the world. James begins to address this subject of what he calls pure and undefiled religion. And this is a word that is thrown around a lot in our culture today, a word that people are very familiar with, the word religion. Now, as most of us know, the New Testament in the Bible is written originally in the Greek language. Translators translated that into English, and they selected words that they thought best represented the words of the Greek language in the New Testament that it was written in. And the Greek word that is translated here as religion is actually a unique Greek word. It's not used very often in the scriptures at all, which means that it is a word that at times can be a very difficult word to translate into English. But I think that when we read this word here in James, the word religion is actually not the best way to translate this word. And the reason for that, the reason why I would say that is because I believe that we have attached so many uh, cultural things, cultural baggage has been attached to this word religion. The word religion today is not thought of positively. Religion is thought of often more negatively. And the reason is, is because many of us, when we think about the word religion, here is how we would define it. And we're going to put this definition up on the screen. And listen, I'm not saying that this is how James would define religion, but this is how most people in our culture today would define it. This is what most people would say. Religion is the outward expression of an inward determination in an attempt to earn God's grace in our lives. Religion is the outward expression of an inward determination to try to earn God's favor. It's what we do religiously in order to earn God's acceptance of us. Many people see religion as a vehicle through which some, we, we do some things or we don't do some things and we try to earn this right standing with God. We, we go to church, we read our Bibles, we pray, we uh, give money, we uh, practice the ordinance, we try to be a good person. All of these things are done with an outward expression of an inward determination to try to earn God's grace in life. That's how a lot of people think about religion. Now, here's why that might not be the best word to use in this text right here. Because there is nothing that you and I can do in order to earn God's grace, to earn God's favor in our lives. There's nothing that we could ever do to earn a right standing with God. Listen, you can come to church every day of the week. You can get baptized until you are as wrinkled as a California raisin. You can, uh, you, you can memorize the entire Bible. None of that is going to earn you a right standing before God. In fact, the truth of the gospel is, is that only Jesus can make you right with God. Only Jesus can do what is needed when he went to the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection that was ordered to, that was able to give us um, a free life 
in, in, through Christ in God, um, we, we put our faith in, in Christ, we, 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 and by grace we have been saved through faith. And so this word religion here, understood as an outward expression of an inward determination and an attempt to earn God's favor and grace in our lives, that is not an accurate understanding of what James is trying to say to us here. In fact, I think that the word that James uses that would be best used to be translated here would be maybe the word worship. That authentic worship is really what he's talking about. Well, let me just give you a definition of authentic worship here. Authentic worship is an outward expression of an inward devotion that reveals God's grace through our lives. Worship is not my attempt to earn God's grace. Worship is my response to having experienced God's grace in my life. Listen, we're here today as an outward expression of an inward devotion that reveals God's grace through our lives. I mean, just a moment ago, we were singing about the goodness and the greatness of God, and some of us were actually raising our hands. We, we, we were uh, doing that, and when we were doing that, were we trying to earn God's favor? No! We were doing that because we have experienced God's favor. We have experienced God's grace in our lives. And as we've lifted our hands and as we lifted our voices, we were celebrating the grace of God in our lives, and His grace was being evidenced in our lives as an act of worship to Him. Authentic worship is what spills out of our lives as a result of God's gracious acceptance of us in Christ. Now, understanding that, let's go back to James chapter 1 again. And this time, I want to substitute a few words here for us. Again, picking it up in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is an authentic worshiper... That's really what James is saying here when he uses this word religious. If anyone thinks he is an authentic worshiper and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's worship is worthless. Worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is what James is talking about What does real, authentic worship look like? So here's the point. The experience of the grace of God in our lives always results in the expression of the grace of God through our lives towards other people. What James is talking about here is what happens to us when we've experienced the grace of God in salvation. And let me just say this. If you are here today, if you are listening to this message today, and you don't have a relationship with God, listen, there is no motion or ritual or no no ceremony that you can go through or perform that can earn you a right standing before God. Salvation and the grace of God is experienced when you realize that there is nothing that you can do in order to save yourself. The only thing that we can do is to throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of God who has made it possible through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to forgive our sins and to bring us by grace into a right relationship with him. But once we have done that, once we have surrendered our lives to Jesus by faith and Jesus has made us right with God, 
Then, in that moment, that experience of God's grace in our lives always results in the expression of God's grace in and through our lives towards other people. Which means that real worship is going to change my marriage. And real worship is going to change the way I relate to my kids. And the way that my kids relate to me. Real worship, the, the real thing, is going to change the way I relate to my coworkers and my boss and the employees at my job, to fellow students and to teachers at the school. Real worship is going to change how I relate to my neighbor who lives right beside me. Now, I want to see if I can kind of help us think through this once here. And in order to do that, I want to show you what is called conduit, okay? Everyone in the field of construction knows what conduit is. Conduit is a piece of pipe or a tube uh, which allows something to kind of pass through it, right? In fact, there is conduit in pretty much every single building that you go into today. I mean, you go into a store, there's conduit there. You go into the school, there's conduit there. You go into your office or at home or here in this church, there's all kinds of conduit everywhere around us. And conduit is designed to have something pass through it. If it's this kind of conduit, it typically is water that is passing through this from one place to another if it's something like this, it's usually electricity or wiring that is going through this conduit. But, but here is what I want you to see. Our lives are to be conduits through which the grace of God can fl- freely flow through it. You, you see, we experience God's grace in our lives. It's God's grace that makes us right with him. It's God's grace that brings us into a relationship with him. But, but now that we know him, that grace is flowing through our lives and it begins to impact other lives around us. Now, I'm not talking about perfection here. But what I am talking about is a pattern. The pattern of our lives is that you and I, whether, we're, whether it's here at church or at school or whether it's the store or the ball field or at the job, our lives become a conduit where the grace of God that we've experienced is fleshed out through our lives and it's channeled to others who are around us so that they too can experience the grace of God in their lives. Now, let me be clear here. I am not all the man that I am supposed to be. But the point is that I am not the man that I used to be either. And I am being changed through a life of worship of the living God. Friends, here is what James is saying. If what we're calling worship isn't spilling out of us as a changed life, then what we're calling worship is actually worthless. Let that sink in for a moment. If what we're calling worship isn't spilling out of our lives in a changed life, if God's grace isn't being allowed to flow through us to impact the lives of others around us, then James says that our worship is worthless. 
The word worthless that James uses is a word that means meaningless or uh, void of significance, empty. It's uh, it's saying that you can go through all of the motions of church, but it's not impact. If it's not impacting what's coming out of your life in the sense of a changed life, where God's grace is flowing through your life, then really what you have is not the real thing. One writer, D. Edmund Hibbert, he said it this way. He said. A professed Christianity that centers on the external expressions of faith, attendance at worship, wrote prayers, church membership, participation in the ordinances, but is devoid of the regenerating power of the gospel, is as futile and unprofitable as idol worship. He says, you know what? You can come in. And you can sit down in a nice church, and you can listen to a great preacher preach, and you can sing a few Christian songs. But if it's not the real authentic thing, if it's not real genuine worship that is spilling out of your life, then it's not the real thing. And it's as good as worshiping an idol is. Let me say it another way. If the God that I worship is not the God that is changing my life, then the God that I worship is not the God of the Bible, but rather it is a convenient God of my own making that is an emotional security blanket for coping with life. James says that worship is worthless, which sadly is what we have created all over the church in America. People who have created a convenient God who is in their pocket in order to meet their needs, but but's not producing a radical changed life on the outside. And what James says is that we have settled for less than the real thing, and it is worthless. So what does authentic worship really look like? Is it about raising our hands in church? Is it about uh, how many Bible verses we can quote? Is it about how many Bible studies we can go to? Listen, all of that can be an authentic expression of worship. But James points out three things here that, for lack of a better word, gets in our business and makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable here. Friends, it's easy to talk about singing the songs. It's easy about going, to talk about going to Bible studies and small groups. But James says, let's get down to some real things that matter here. And this is not an exhaustive list here, but this is a sample of what authentic worship looks like. Let me, let me give you the first one here. Authentic worship is revealed in the things that, that I say. Authentic worship is revealed in the things I say. Look look at verse 26 there again, James chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious, and basically if anyone thinks he is an authentic worshiper and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Listen, we come to church. We we can uh, be the loudest singer. We can have our hands raised the highest. We can go to all the Bible studies and serve in every single ministry possible. But James says that if it does not change the way that we speak to other people, it is not the real thing. The word that James uses here is that word tongue. And when James uses the word tongue, he's using it metaphorically. 
He's not literally talking about that piece of flesh that's in your mouth. He's talking about the tongue and what it does. Here, um, this word tongue in the New Testament, it refers to speech or to language or uh, maybe in a broader way to human communication. And James says, if you want to know if what you have is the real thing, then here is the question to ask yourself. Is my worship changing the way I communicate with other people? Can other people see in the way that I communicate with them that God's changing my life and that, that, that my life is a conduit of his grace? Now, as we study through the book of James together, we're, we're going to see that James has a lot to say about the tongue. In fact, there are five chapters in the book of James. Every one of those chapters addresses this issue of the tongue and how we communicate with each other. In chapter 3, almost the whole chapter is devoted to the tongue. Why does James talk so much about the tongue? Well, human communication with words, it's a major part of our lives as human beings. A recent study that was done reveals that, on average, human beings speak about 16,000 words a day. On average, that is. I mean, uh, maybe you're, you came here today and you're a little bit above average. Or may, maybe you're sitting with somebody who you would consider to be a little bit below average and you wish that maybe they would speak a little bit more. But the bottom line is that on average, we speak about 16,000 words a day, which is enough to fill the average book in three days. Meaning that if I take all the words that I speak over the next three days, I could have a book written about that. Or, or if you took all of the words that were spoken over the course of a year, you would have 120 books. If you do the math, we spent about uh, 20% of our lives communicating with other people. And James is saying that a primary way that we express authentic worship is how we communicate with others. Which means this. If my heart is truly experienced God's grace, God's grace will be demonstrated in how I communicate to the other people around me in life. Now listen, this is not new information that James is giving us. James actually heard this from his half-brother Jesus. In fact, in a sermon that's recorded in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus said this in verse 18, But what comes out of the mouth precedes from the heart. What, what he's saying is that authentic worship is revealed in how we communicate with each other. And I want us to think about that for a moment. Friends, the way that we communicate with our family when we are on the way home from church says more about our worship than our loud singing or uh, how long we pray or how uh, many sermon notes we take. James is saying that if I come in here and I'm saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, and then I go get in the car and all hell breaks loose and it's all coming out of my mouth, James says that my worship is then worthless. It's not the real thing that I've settled for a cheap uh, substitute. I, I've settled for the counterfeit. And if our, our communication does not change 
in our marriage or our communication does not change with our children or with our parents. If uh, tomorrow I go to work and the way that I communicate does not reveal that I was worshiping today, then there is something wrong with my worship. It is worthless. David Platt said it this way. Don't deceive yourself. When you speak, you tell the truth about your heart. Well, James uses a very powerful picture here when he says that when he talks about bridling the tongue. And I grew up on a farm um, and some of our neighbors had horses, but we didn't have horses. I don't know a whole ton about horses, but I know a little bit about horses. We've actually got a picture that we're going to put on the screen here so that you can kind of see this once. But a bridle is something that is made up of two pieces. Uh, first, you have a bit. And that bit goes into the mouth of a horse. And then secondly, you have these reins that come off of that bit. They they go uh, back to the hands of the rider. And with the bit in the horse's mouth and the reins in the hands uh, of the rider, that horse is now bridled. And that, that rider can just pull just slightly on the reins and turn that horse in whatever direction it wants to go. James says that we are to bridle our tongues, which means this. We put the bit in our mouths. We put the reins in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God so that our mouths and the way that we communicate is under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. And what does it mean when we talk about being under the control of the Holy Spirit of God? Well, Look at what Paul says about this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, we are supposed to be conduits of the grace of God in the way that we communicate with other people. And when James or when Paul writes about that, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. You say, well, I mean, that's not really possible. And you're right. In your own strength, that is not possible. And it's right that in my own strength, it's not possible for me either. It's not possible for us to do this, but... If we put the bit in our mouths and we put the reins in the hands of the Holy Spirit, our lives will be conduits of the grace of God. Listen, we won't get this right all of the time. But even when we get it wrong, a heart of worship leads us to repentance where we go to that person and we make it right with them and we go to those people who we've said something, communicated something wrongly and we make it right and we humble ourselves and when we do that, they experience God's grace in life. Now, just a quick application here before we move on to the next point. Listen, In a day of text messaging and emails and cell phones and social media and blog posts, we need to be careful because all of these things involve the tongue, human communication. Friends, we have created an entire culture that says if you have a thought, then you should immediately share that with the rest of the world. 
But as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we've got to be careful of what kind of, of, of things we're doing. We need to be careful of that kind of thinking. We, we need to keep a tight rein on our tongues. We, we need to watch the way that we speak because our speech shows whether our faith is real or, or whether um, we are totally under the control of the Holy Spirit and allowing God to work in and through us. You know, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but I did just want to put something up on the screen. And I hope that this could help be a guide for you in this. And maybe if you've got a phone here this morning, you might want to pull this out and just take a quick snapshot of, of, of the, the screen that's on up right now. As it pertains to social media, there are four things here that I think could be good guidelines for us to follow. And the first is just this. Check your heart before you start. Secondly, pray before you post. Third, make sure that someone you trust has read it before you spread it. And then finally, when in doubt, don't. When in doubt, just don't. If you take this filter and you lay it down on your usage of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, Snapchat, text messaging, all of these social things, it, it, it will take the bit and it will place it into your mouth and it will put the reins in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God. And here is what James is teaching us. If you want to know if you have the real thing, then make sure that your worship is being expressed in the way that you communicate with other people. Here's the second thing. Authentic worship is revealed in the people I serve. Authentic worship is revealed in the people I serve. Here's what James is saying in verse 27. He says, religion or authentic worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That, that word affliction, it's a very strong word in the Greek language. It comes from the verb that means to crush or to squeeze. And I want you to just kind of do this with me for a moment. Humor me, if you will, but take your hands and just kind of put them out in front of you like this, all right? And then I want you to take them and I want you to interlock your fingers and put them together like this. And just squeeze them. Squeeze them as tight as you can. That is the verb. That's the word that comes from that verb to crush, to squeeze. And imagine that there is an egg in your hands. And you're just squeezing it as hard as you can until it breaks and it starts running out all over you and all over the floor. And that's the picture that James is painting for us here. That word affliction, it speaks of people who have been physically, mentally, socially, or economically crushed by the world. They, they have this great pressure that has been put on them. It's squeezed them. They, they've experienced difficult ex experiences and circumstances. They, they've been left in great need. It's a word that describes people who are very vulnerable and the circumstances of life have left them hurting. And here is what James says, genuine worship is seen in how we relate to those who are in need. He mentions two groups of people here. This is not an exhaustive list, but he mentions orphans and widows. And you might say, well, why in the world did he select those two people, those two groups of people in this context? Here's why. 
In the first century, when James was writing this, there, there was no more neglected group of people in society than orphans and widows. Orphans and widows in the first century were literally destitute. They were the neediest group of people in their society. In the first century, in the Roman Empire, there was no government program. There, there, were no, there was no such thing as life insurance. There were no uh, not-for-profit organizations or food pantries. None of those things existed for orphans and widows. They were totally abandoned. They were left crushed by life. And James is teaching us that our involvement in those who are in distress is more than just a donation to be made. James says that we are to visit orphans and widows. And what he's talking about is that he's talking about taking some action, personally getting involved, taking care of those who are vulnerable and in need in our culture and in our communities. And the reason why we get involved is for the purpose of understanding their needs and then seeking to meet them. Did you hear that? James says that if our worship is genuine, if we've got the real thing, then one of the ways that we are going to see the grace of God lived out in our lives is that it's going to move us to get involved with the least of these in society. Friends, I want you to just listen very carefully here. Caring for the most vulnerable people in our communities, it's not an option for us as believers. If we are going to conduct uh, our, our lives in the way, in a manner of Christ, if we are going to be conduits of the grace of God in this city, then this is our obligation. If what we have when we gather together every weekend is the real thing, then our city will know that, that, that we have been changed and transformed because they're experiencing the grace of God in their lives, through the way that we serve them, through the way that we engage the most vulnerable in our society in order to meet their needs and to walk with them. Now, as I'm speaking here, I'm sure that there are some things that are coming to your minds as it relates to those who are vulnerable in our society. Things like homelessness, those who are growing up without parents involved in their lives, single moms, Babies who are being um, uh, aborted, those who are being trafficked, those who are strung out and wrestling with addictions, those who are tragically have tragically lost loved ones in their lives and are just feeling overwhelmed with the grief of that. And friends, if we're going to live out real authentic worship in our lives, then stepping into these contexts and getting involved in the lives of people who are vulnerable needs to be a priority for us. And maybe you get involved in volunteering at a food pantry or a food distribution center. Maybe it's connecting with Southside Pregnancy, which is just down the street on 95th Street in Evergreen Park, and it's an organization that helps single moms. Maybe it's connecting with the Agape Center and talking to Wade and Bethany Norman or Anilda Barbosa and just saying, hey, how can I help? Because I care about the needs of vulnerable kids in this city. I know that some of you are involved in leading things like grief share programs in our neighborhood and things like AA. And let me just say 
That, that if you have questions about any of these things, or maybe you're looking for ways to get involved, I, I, I just encourage you, come talk to me about that. I, I, I'd love to help you find some resources. I'd love to help you get plugged in. I'd love to help you think about ways that you can practically serve the needs of those who are vulnerable around us. But again, listen, James says that authentic worship is revealed in the people we serve. That we are to be conduits of the grace of God through our lives and into the lives of other people around us. Well, let's look at one last thing here. Authentic worship is revealed in the things that we say, in the people that we serve, and lastly, in the life I live. In the life I live. Do you see what James says here at the end of verse 27? He says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What he's saying is that authentic worship should result in attractive living. That, that others should see something in us that, that's so different from the world that, that they are draw, they, they're drawn to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Listen, the tragedy in our world today is that so many so-called believers live just like the rest of the world. And, and here's what I mean by that. You know, a few years ago, we faced a pandemic, and the pro primary response of the world was fear. Sadly, the, the, many believers responded in the same way, that, that the primary response to COVID was fear. We've had economic problems, downturns economically in recent times, and the primary response of the world has been greed. I'm going to get mine. How can I make sure that I'm protected, that I'm okay? Unfortunately, that's how the church, how many Christians has responded as well. In the realm of politics, the world has responded with divisions. Unfortunately, the same thing has happened in a lot of churches too. Division. Social media, in the world, we see a complete lack of self-control as it relates to social media. But unfortunately, it's not just the world, it's us too. And here's what James is saying. We've got to face the same things that the world faces. There are pandemics and there are um, uh, politics and economic downturns, social media. We all face the same thing. But here is the difference. We have experienced the grace of God in our lives. And the authentic worship that should come out of us should be revealed in a changed life. Others should see something different about us in the way that we live our lives in the midst of the same circumstances that everybody else is facing in life. Well, I want to close this morning with a quote from a guy by the name of Robert Lewis. He wrote a book called The Church of Irresistible Influence. Listen to what he says. The world is tired of the church impersonally talking it down and chewing it up. What the world waits to see is whether what we have is better than what they have. Just think what bridges we could build if we truly followed the example of the New Testament church. We would go beyond being seeker-sensitive to a new frontier of being community-admired. We would be known not just by the corner we inhabit, but by the city that we uh, that, that, but, but by the city with which we interact. And 
people would be drawn to God, not because of the weekly show in our churches, but by the irrefutable lies we incarnate. Friends, that's what James says. The real thing is, real authentic worship, that's what that looks like. Let's pray.